Hello, and thank you for joining our Morning Commute podcast series on multiple sclerosis. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete six-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS. In this episode, Alike But Not Alike, our faculty will discuss how newly available diroxamil fumarate DRF and monomethyl fumarate MMF compare with dimethyl fumarate DMF. How are they alike? How do they differ? Is MMF a drug equivalent to DMF? I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Patricia Coyle, the Director of the MS Comprehensive Care Center in the Department of Neurology at Stony Brook University in New York, and by Dr. John Rinker, Associate Professor of Neurology in the Neurology Department at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Coyle will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast, Alike But Not Alike. John, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Pat. It's good to be here. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the various fumarate agents to treat MS, uh, particularly one of the newer ones, diroxamel fumarate. So, John, when we talk about fumarates and their mechanism of action to treat relapsing MS, what do we know about that and how do you think about that? Sure. So I think it's um, interesting to look back at the, the history of how the fumarates came to even be used in the treatment of multiple sclerosis or MS. My understanding is that it really goes back to um, the mid 20th century when it was sort of serendipitously discovered uh, that fumarates, which at the time were used in certain industrial processes, seemed to have uh, therapeutic benefits in patients uh, with psoriasis. And so uh, beginning in the 1950s in, in Germany, the fumarates were, were given uh, as pulse therapy for patients who were living with psoriasis with a good response um, of their psoriasis symptoms to the medication. And this was eventually refined into um, a medication specifically for acute psoriasis flares that was uh, administered in Germany beginning in the 1990s. And along the way, uh, the immune modulatory properties of the fumarates came to the attention of investigators um, also curious about multiple sclerosis. And as it turns out, um, some of the same immunologic mechanisms that were good for psoriasis also seem to be beneficial for multiple sclerosis. Now, teasing apart what those mechanisms are has been uh, a little bit more of a challenge. A lot of the initial mechanistic studies that I'm aware of focused on the NRF2 um, pathway, which has immune modulatory properties that uh, favor a, a downregulation of autoimmune inflammation in multiple sclerosis. But I know that more recently, there's also just been attention paid 
to the um, more global immune suppressive effects of the fumarates and specifically in reducing lymphocyte counts in patients who take it on an ongoing basis? Well, that is actually one of the most feared uh, complications. We know that lymphocyte uh, count is lowered by about 30%, but 6% of individuals have noted a significant decrease in lymphocytes to less than 500 absolute lymphocyte count. And there actually is some guidance from the label that if that persists over longer than six months, you might consider discontinuing the treatment. Now, we actually have four fumarates, right? We have the parent dimethyl fumarate, then we have diroximel fumarate, then we have monomethyl fumarate, and then we have a generic dimethyl fumarate. So John, let's let's focus on, on, on the parent, the dimethyl fumarate, first of all. So how is that uh, given what, what dosing and what sort of counseling do you do when you're thinking about starting that? And how do you view that in the armamentarium of our variety of MS disease modifying therapies? Sure. So, um, so dimethyl fumarate, the way we use it in clinical practice now, is first uh, administered in a starting dose uh, of 120 milligrams, which is encapsulated and taken twice a day. After one week's exposure, uh, patients are advised to double that to 240 milligrams twice a day. And I think it's an important point to make. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the other fumarates down the road, but that the end result of taking that particular dose of dimethyl fumarate results in rapid conversion of dimethyl fumarate into monomethyl fumarate which is the active ingredient of this medication. And the other medications, that the other fumarates that we're going to discuss are all based around this same level of monomethyl fumarate that's taken into uh, and processed through the body. So the dosing of all of these drugs, even though the milligrams may differ, result in the same amount of active ingredient circulating through the body. When it comes to identifying the kind of patients that may be helped by this particular class of medications, I think it comes back to um, looking at how the patients present, how active their disease is, and whether or not they can be expected to uh, both tolerate the medication and whether they're going to be able to adhere to the twice-daily dosing regimen that it requires. So when I look at this at the class of fumarate medications, I see it in the sort of moderately effective category, which is to say patients who have mild to moderate MS with their initial presentation um, who are willing to take a medication twice a day may be good candidates for a medication like this, while patients who have a more aggressive presentation may look elsewhere for a more higher efficacy treatment. Remember to claim your CME CE credits and evaluate this podcast by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS3. Let's rejoin Drs. Coyle and Rinker as they turn to patients who become lymphopenic. Although some patients may actually feel better with low lymphocyte counts, what are some of the consequences that could befall them? So when I'm going to start a patient on dimethyl fumarate, I certainly screen their CBC with diff to get a baseline and a a hepatic panel as a baseline. And I'm typically 
uh, checking a CBC with diff every six months. So in the patient that becomes lymphopenic, and this has happened even below 500, they don't want to come off it. They feel great and uh, they're not having infections, et cetera. I've actually not forced them to come off it. How do you treat that issue? Sure. So I think a lot of times those patients who are living with um, low lymphocyte counts, one reason I think they probably are feeling well uh, is that immune suppression is probably feeding into their the success of, of treating their multiple sclerosis. And so it doesn't surprise me that patients with more immune suppression may actually, in some cases, be less inclined to come off the medication when a safety signal like a low lymphocyte count occurs. Now, that said, you know, patients who have low lymphocyte counts should be made aware of what some of the consequences or potential consequences are of having a suppressed immune system. Uh, certainly opportunistic infections, such as respiratory infections, as well as um, recurrence of latent infections like varicella, which may present as shingles. And then, of course, the boogaboo of all MS uh, complications, uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, has also been reported, um, although rarely, in patients taking dimethylfumarate. And lymphopenia was one of the common denominators in most, if not all, of those cases. So um, while I agree with you that in the right patient, uh, it may be appropriate to continue therapy, even if they do have a low lymphocyte count, uh, it is something that should only be done uh, with the informed consent of the patient so that they know the risks that they're accepting in continuing on a medication uh, when lymphopenia is a concern. And that I totally agree with. It's a reminder that dimethylfumarate, the fumarates are one of the DMTs that we need to counsel about a slightly increased risk of PML. I think there have been 10 cases with most of them, but not all showing a low lymphopenia. And there may be an age-related thing as well. Um, let's turn to diroxamel fumarate. Uh, this is a different packaged uh, product. It's given at a different dose, uh, 462 milligrams twice a day. There's stark doses. 230 milligrams twice a day the first week. But this was actually uh, studied in two trials, Evolve 1, uh, approximately two-year study, and Evolve 2, which was a, a five-week study. John, can you kind of tell me about those Evolve trials and what is different about diroxamel fumarate vis-a-vis dimethyl fumarate? Sure. So the Evolve MS 1 and 2 studies um, were really developed to test whether a chemically similar but distinctly different molecule, uh, this diroxamel fumarate, could be better tolerated than dimethyl fumarate, specifically with regards to GI side effects. One of the um, perhaps most important treatment-limiting side effects of dimethyl fumarate is the occurrence of not just bothersome, but at times... Um, intolerable GI side effects that, that can occur, especially in the early weeks of treatment when that medication is initiated. So deroxamel fumarate was developed to be better tolerated to the GI tract, and the Evolve MS studies were really conceived to try and demonstrate the improved tolerability of deroxamel fumarate uh, in comparison to dimethyl fumarate, excuse me, yeah, into dimethyl fumarate. And so 
um, in order to establish this, the trials looked at five key GI symptoms that patients uh, tracked over the course of the study. And these included abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And patients tracked these symptoms, not just their frequency, but their severity over time. And in doing so, they were able to show at the end of the trial that patients who took deroxynol fumarate did indeed have um, less frequent and less severe uh, GI symptoms than patients uh, who took dimethyl fumarate. Another interesting maybe point about the dimethyl fumarate, excuse me, the deroxynol fumarate study was that the, the type of diet that was encouraged of patients who were taking the medicine was a little bit different than, the, than those taking the dimethyl fumarate. Patients taking dimethyl fumarate are encouraged to take their medication with a fatty meal, whereas patients who take deroxynol fumarate were encouraged to take it in the absence of a fatty meal. And so there's some differences in what circumstances the patients are taking the medication, as well as the overall tolerance of the medication uh, down the road, which of course is important to continuation and treatment adherence. That's perhaps the most important factor of responsiveness to any MS therapy. Right. And then of course, Evolve One was their very large but single arm study that, that has gone on for two years that really documented that diroxymel fumarate had clinical and had MRI efficacy, which we would expect, of course, which we would expect. Right. So let, let me turn now to monomethyl fumarate. So we make the point that the active ingredient is monomethyl fumarate, and both dimethyl fumarate and diroxymel fumarate have, have excess factors. So there is a monomethyl fumarate product that's actually given at 190 milligram, two capsules twice a day, 190 milligrams twice a day. You start the first week, 95 milligrams twice a day. This is actually the active ingredient, monomethyl fumarate. We have limited data on that, but what do you think about that, John? Doesn't it make more sense to give the active agent than, you know, a sort of a, a broader gamish? Uh, sure. So, it raises a good question, and it's one that we don't often encounter in MS therapeutics is, should we be giving a prodrug when, when the, uh, the active agent on its own will do? And I think the, uh, the limited clinical evidence we have from studying monomethyl fumarate seems to suggest that, well, maybe we um, don't need to be as concerned about administering the prodrug if the, if the active agent itself can be absorbed uh, and have the same clinical effect. One interesting detail about the monomethyl fumarate is that the, um, the principal trial that I'm aware of that looked at its equivalence to um, dimethyl fumarate was actually studied not in MS patients, but in healthy subjects. The endpoint was, was the same looking for, as for the deroxymel fumarate study, looking for GI tolerability, and they found in healthy individuals, so not MS patients, that uh, indeed the, the monomethyl fumarate was somewhat better tolerated and the duration of GI symptoms when they occurred was shorter than for the patients taking dimethyl fumarate. But uh, just like with duroxynol fumarate, the FDA approval really hinged on knowing that the active ingredient uh, once absorbed into the body uh, was equivalent. So, so the, the impetus for the study design was not really on demonstrating efficacy, 
it was really on demonstrating improved tolerability. And so um, I think the picture is still a little bit unclear how and when to use these um, newer iterations of the fumarate family, deroxanol fumarate and monomethyl fumarate, um, although GI tolerability appears to be at least a motivating factor for studying these alternative um, agents. Right. And then again, we even have this fourth agent, which is a generic dimethyl fumarate. And we're beginning to see more generics. We certainly have that principle for glutaromeracetate for some time, and, and there will be other generics uh, uh, coming. Uh, and these are often done uh, without any formal studies. How, how do you think about the, just briefly, how do you think about the generic dimethyl fumarate? And would you be upset if your patient was asked to take that or, or switch, switch to it? How would you approach that? Sure. So I think the, uh, as the expression goes, the proof will be in, in the pudding. And, you know, it's, it remains to be seen whether uh, there are any important differences possibly in efficacy, but I think more important in tolerability as the uh, distribution of these generic forms of dimethyl fumarate become more widespread. In our own clinical practice, we have limited experience thus far with the generic dimethyl fumarates, but I am um, aware from talking to our, our clinical MS pharmacists that at least anecdotally, there may be some slight differences in the tolerability to some of the generic forms of dimethyl fumarate in comparison to the trade version of dimethyl fumarate, not just with GI symptoms, but also with in, uh, increased flushing on the generic version compared to the uh, traditional version. And so uh, I think it's too early to know if these anecdotes are uh, generalizable to the MS population in general, but it is something important that I think we need to pay attention to uh, in the months and years ahead. Are four fumarates too many? Doctors Coyle and Rinker drill down into some of the pros and cons of these alike but not alike drugs. And finally, who are the best patients for oral fumarates? So we actually have four of these oral fumarates or relapsing forms of MS. Personally, I think it's too many. <laughs> you know, uh, there are differences in the ability to take them without food rather than requiring a fatty meal. Uh, there are differences with regard to the GI tolerability, not a difference in the flushing. I would just make a comment that when dimethyl fumarate first came out, people were not aware of how nasty the GI issues could be. But then they kind of learned to dose escalate or stabilize, maybe not go up as much, make sure you treat it. And I think it hasn't been um, as much of a problem, uh, to be honest, most recently. So my impression is that four fumarates is probably a little bit too many. I don't know how you feel about it, John. I would say, um, finishing up, the, the one thing I would stress in talking about the various iterations of, this, of these medications is that one of the um, maybe early complaints with the, the branded dimethyl fumarate was that when in patients who, who did have some trouble tolerating it, um, it was initially quite difficult to go down on the dosage. And so patients were sort of locked into this standard single dosing regimen of 240 milligrams twice a day, unless you could get you know, special dispensation of starter kits to allow patients to try a lower dose for a period of time. 
And one of the advantages of some of the newer medications like the duroxamel fumarate or the monomethyl fumarate is that the, uh, the capsules are taken not as a, an upsized single capsule or an updose single capsule, but as two of the basically starter dose uh, capsules um, on an ongoing basis. And so I think having a little bit of more flexibility when it comes to the dosing, to, especially to help patients through the early adjustment period of these medicines, um, may be to the benefit of our patients if they can find something or a dose or a dosing schedule that's better tolerated. So I think that's a very practical point, John. And, and, and maybe the final issue we'll tackle briefly is who is the optimal patient for a fumarate uh, with a relapsing form of MS and who wouldn't be a good uh, patient? And John, I'll ask you to weigh in and then, then maybe I'll give my impression on that. Sure. So in my practice, a good patient for dimethyl fumarate is generally going to be um, a newly diagnosed patient, perhaps who's not had an overly severe presentation, um, maybe perhaps a, a mild case of optic neuritis or a numb hand or something along those lines, maybe with not an overly heavy disease burden, but someone who clearly still needs to be treated. And so as long as the patient is healthy, uh, they don't have known hematologic problems, they don't have a history of GI illness such as Crohn's disease or something uh, where the medication might aggravate their GI symptoms, I think those patients are ideal for this class of medication. Also patients who are averse to injections or who uh, are fearful of the side effects from some of the more high efficacy medications for them, I think uh, dimethyl fumarate is a good choice as well. I also think young females who may be um, interested in starting families uh, down the road, this represents a good a medication that can be easily stopped and quickly leaves the body, which prevents um, potential harmful exposure to a, a developing fetus uh, in the case of an unintended pregnancy. So I think those are all good points. Uh, this is not a high efficacy agent. It's a moderate efficacy agent. You would not want to use it in our so-called aggressive or highly active disease. But for somebody who wants an, an, an oral, it is very good. It's pretty easy to start. You do not have to jump through a lot of hoops. You want to make sure the individual is capable of taking it twice a day because it doesn't work once a day. That's not sufficient. Um, Somebody that might have a co-diagnosis of psoriasis, this could be very appealing, but it's easy to get on. And I think the pregnancy issue is quite intriguing. Now, this is my personal opinion. Understand, this is not based on, on evidence-based data. I would not have somebody do a washout. I would have them take um, the fumarate until they got pregnant because the half-life is one hour or a little bit less. It's gonna wash out within one day. And the animal models are really not very impressive for any um, fetal significant issues is at much higher doses than you get in humans. And there has been no human pregnancy teratogenicity shown, although they don't have over a thousand cases, so it's limited. So this may be a very good agent for people that don't have very active disease that really wanna be on an oral. It's a very easy um, startup. Um, John, I want to thank you for this interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. And thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS3 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. 
In our next podcast in this series, Dr. Fred Loveland and Dr. Robert Brunel return to discuss the current evidence in disease-modifying therapies for patients with active secondary progressive MS. That podcast, Close to the Mark on SPMS, can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS4. And you can find all of the podcasts in the six-part series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS.